Let's open our Bibles to the New Testament, to the book of Luke. To the New Testament in the book of Luke. We're in chapter 6. We've been away for a little while with Advent series, and we're resuming, and we're actually going to pick up in Luke chapter 6 in verse 12. And none of my bookmarks are in the right place. That happens. So you use your Bible a lot, so you're moving them around. Uh, and as you're turning and as I'm turning, let me welcome those who might be watching by video, our live stream. <coughs> I'm all choked up. But I'm glad you're here with us and uh, we miss you. Some of our members are home not feeling well and others that might be exploring our ministry here to listen to God's word. We thank you and pray God's blessing upon you. Join us if you can. Our text begins in Luke chapter 6, verse 12, and goes through verse 19. This is the holy, inspired word of God. In these days, he, Jesus, went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, and he named, whom he named, apostles. Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew, his brother, and James and John, and Philip and Bartholomew, and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. And he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him for power came out from him and healed them all. Thus far we read in God's good and holy word, may he bless all who hear, believe, and obey it. Amen and amen. There are a few instances in scripture where it reports that Jesus spent the night in prayer. And that's one of the large features of this text, and that should weigh heavy upon us, that our Lord himself, holy and sinless as he was, spent the night in prayer. He did it on this occasion to select his apostles. And as we look at that list, there are several ways we could comment on the outcome and the answer to his prayer. Some of those guys had a lot of work yet to be done. Peter the impestuous and Thomas the doubter and the quiet guy over there. And then there's that Judas... Hmm. If you're familiar with the Christmas time movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, the main character, not our elder, but the real, the, the fictional George Bailey, uh, wonders if his life is worth it and he's, he's, he's ready to do himself in so his family could have the money from his life insurance. And he prays. He prays to God for help. What, what does God do in answer to his prayer in the movie? Sends him an angel but one that doesn't really look like Gabriel or Michael 
In fact, it's an angel, is it second class, named Clarence. And that's a humorous thread through the part of that part of the movie. That in answer to prayer, God would send an angel, but the angel would be this old character. At least the fictional movie goes on to explain that. But by the end of that movie, which is why I'm using the illustration, we see the wisdom in sending just the right answer to his prayer. God accomplishes many things when he answers prayer, and God answered the prayer of Jesus by giving him these men and using those men to establish his church and to help change the world. As we turn to Luke 6, we see some significant things about the Lord. We see something about prayer. We see something about disciples, apostles. Let's give our attention to these things. First, let's start with prayer. Indeed, what we see in our text is the priority of prayer. Do we not? It's a mark of the life of Jesus, and it's a mark a characteristic that identifies you if you're a disciple of Jesus. People who pray. There is no such thing as a prayerless Christian. But back to what's going on here. Verse 12, it says, in these days. So it's an overview of this period between the, what had been happening and what was about to happen, the the great Sermon on the Plain, Luke's version of the Sermon on the Mount, big teaching section coming up. And Jesus is going to pick his disciples. But what had been happening just prior to this? Prayer was a priority because of the the many conflicts and opposition that had grown against Jesus. He'd be in the synagogue, and instead of people listening to his teaching as they initially did, some of the guys were there to wonder how they might entrap him and oppose him. So from chapter 5, verse 17, right up to chapter 6, verse 11, it's a serious season of conflict for Jesus, and it's directed at him personally. And he's trying to serve the Lord. He's speaking truth. He's touching lives and healing people. But the world did not receive him. We can look just at verse 11, immediately preceding our text to see the flavor of that. After he had healed a man with a withered hand, verse 11 says, But they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Oh my. Oh my. Conflict. Therefore, Jesus gives himself to prayer. Let me just remind disciples of Jesus in this room or elsewhere that when you are opposed, when you're in the midst of conflict, we ought to pray. The world might say prayer is your last resort. What do you think of that? No. It seems to me that for the Christian, if we're like our Lord Jesus Christ, prayer is our first and mighty resort. The priority of prayer is also highlighted here by the significance of the decision that Jesus needed to make. He not only saw his past and his present conflicts, but he saw going forward 
On this mission, I'm here to establish the church and call a people to myself, and I'm going to need workers for the harvest fields. I will call not just Christians, but I will call leaders among the Christians, and I'll call them apostles. So Jesus had a decision to make. If you live in the United States and you've been watching the news, you know that our House of Representatives in Washington had a decision to make. And oh, dare I start to ridicule, I will not. And I'm not sure how to characterize the result, but it is what it is. But in the midst of that, I was so pleased to see a photograph, and I'm still Googling, trying to run this down. Let me know if you find it. At one point in the well of the house, I think other business had ended for the day, there's a group of about a dozen or 15 congressmen on their knees praying. I want to know more about that. The media won't talk about that. Why were they praying? Well, because of the ugliness of the process and the lack of a decision. I did hear that Texas congressman named Arrington said, we may not have a speaker, but we have a savior and his name is Jesus. Pray for wisdom and courage for our leaders and pray for his mercy on our nation. When you have a decision to make, you should pray. I'm so glad to have seen a few in Washington on their knees. Well, Jesus himself, who was sent into the world, was going to send out into the world his apostles, so therefore he prays all night. There's another function of praying here for Jesus. Why did it take all night? This was a particularly full, rich, deep, maybe agonizing time of prayer because it involved the submission of Jesus' will to the will of the Father. Most clearly you see that in Gethsemane as Jesus prayed with the greatest of intensity. Here we think there is some dimension of that as well. He is praying, and the essence of prayer is, Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What did Jesus have to submit to in this moment? Jesus knew the mission. Jesus knew the plan that the shepherd would be struck, that he'd be sold for 30 pieces of silver, and that to orchestrate the plan of God, God in his providence would work with a sinful man with evil intent named Judas. And to put Judas in that place meant that Jesus had to gather him into that circle of apostles. When Jesus called the twelve, it's reported by Matthew, by Mark, by Luke, that that number included Judas Iscariot, comma, who became a traitor. Jesus knew the son of perdition. Jesus, in his time of prayer, must have said, not my will, but thine, Father. And he prays. Because the way God works his will in the world involves suffering, it involves affliction, it involves our weakness. All gathered to serve his glory. 
there's a mystery of the providence of God. There was a a quote, I don't think I grabbed it into my notes, how, how prayer walks hand in hand with the providence of God. Jesus prays, Jesus knows the scriptures, he knows Isaiah 53. And it says, Judas, come, I will send you alongside Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Nathaniel. Judas. He's listed last as the Gospels are written because of his reputation and his evil deeds. He's listed last. Indeed, there was another member of the disciples. Judas was a common, word, common name. Judas, the son of James, who is called by a different name in other places. He backs away from that name down the road, apparently, or the gospel writers do because of Judas Iscariot. In one text in the New Testament says Judas, not Iscariot, not that one, this one. Jesus prayed all night to make sure he was submitting to the will of God because he had a significant decision to make in the face of conflict. The priority of prayer. I don't know what's going on in your life, but I'm sure there are conditions that would call us to pray. Let's look at the second heading, picking the 12 apostles. We're not going to dwell on all the details that we could, and if you read a detailed commentary about the list of the 12 men, we could fill several sermons. In fact, once upon a time, we did a Sunday night series where we spent one evening message on each of these 12 guys. I don't know if that's recorded on the website or where it is, but uh, let's just talk about the picking of these 12 apostles and note first that before they were elevated to a specific office of service, the apostles' office, they were disciples. God calls men and women to himself as disciples and then deploys them, perhaps raising them to an office in the church as he sees fit. But they begin as disciples. What is a disciple? It is a student. A disciple is a follower, an adherent. Disciple, mentioned in in verse 12 and again in verse 17. Uh, excuse me, verse 13 and 17. And when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12. Verse 17, he came down with them and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples. There are many that were following. We can't miss the, the fact that if you want your life to have a relationship with God and you want your life to be in service of God, you need to be a disciple of Jesus. There aren't other shortcuts to pleasing and serving God. So I should ask, as does the sermon title today, whose disciple are you? Wasn't it Bob Dylan in his Christian period saying a song, you got to serve somebody? I can't remember the tune, but I remember that lyric, and he he really hammered it. You gotta serve somebody. You're all serving someone. Whose disciple are you? Who do you follow? Who influences you and your choices? 
how are you prepared for greater service to God? It starts with the fundamentals of discipleship. And so at the beginning of a new year, let me remind you to be disciples, be in the word, be in prayer, be with God's people. All the fundamentals should be there if God is to know you and use you in greater ways. Well, secondly, let's notice that all of these were ordinary men. The disciples that Jesus called to be apostles weren't necessarily the cream of the crop. And I'm I'm not trying to uh, cartoonize them and make a caricature of them. We know they had foibles like all of us. They weren't the worst of men. They weren't the best of men. They were ordinary men. In fact, that word in Greek... uh, Uh, that's used uh, in uh, Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 verse 13 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. How were the disciples? This is after the resurrection. This is when they're starting to step forward with boldness. And they got into trouble with the Sanhedrin. Peter and John are, are pushing back. We love Jesus. We're going to keep preaching Jesus. And the Jewish leaders perceived that they were uneducated, common men. That word for common in Greek means the most plain person of private life, devoid of spiritual learning or gifts, a plain person. A person from the background. If you were thinking of a movie set, they'd be the extra. They don't get to talk. They don't get to be in the front of the camera. They're just there. That's whom Jesus called to himself. Ordinary men. What are their names? Well, we have the 12 names here. There's a list elsewhere, both in Matthew and Mark, and there's a list in the book of Acts. And a couple of the disciples have more than one name. So if you have a study Bible, that can help you figure this out. Simon is always listed first because by the time these things are written, he was the natural leader of this group. Simon, whom Jesus named Peter. And then Andrew, his brother, even though Andrew technically came first. He was the first to follow. He got his brother, but that's okay. Andrew doesn't mind being there. Then the third and fourth slots, James and John, they were the sons of thunder the sons of Zebedee. There's a man named Philip. And then there's Bartholomew. In John chapter 2, he's called Nathaniel. And it's a beautiful story of how he approaches Jesus. And uh, uh, Jesus mentions that he has no guile. Matthew, well, Matthew has another name as well. Do you remember? Luke had just told us about how this guy became a disciple in chapter 5. Just turn back one page, chapter 5, verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi. Uh, And that's a good Hebrew name. And Levi followed him. And now he's going by the name of Matthew. Then there's Thomas. We know Thomas quite well. There's people we don't know so well. James, the son of Alphaeus. He's often called James the Lesser. 
because the other James, the son of Zebedee, was a, a great leader. And then there would be, beyond these apostles, the half-brother of Jesus named James, who was a leader in the church in Jerusalem and wrote the book of James. So this James is really low on the totem pole of James's. Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, the son of James, Judas in Matthew and Mark is called Thaddeus. And then Judas Iscariot, Judas, son of Cariot, Carioth, uh, it might be a place name or a surname, who became the traitor. Interesting, these names of ordinary men, to us precious and famous now that we've read of their exploits and how God used them, but they started as ordinary men. And there is no cookie cutter version here. They all look a little different. They all act a little different. What are some of these differences? Well, we could say, by contrast, that Peter is the optimist and Thomas is the pessimist. We could see Simon the Zealot, who hated Rome and its uh, tax levy and was ready to overthrow the government. And then there was Levi, the Jew who had cooperated with the Roman government, was employed by the Roman government collecting taxes. Hmm. I wonder if they sat together at lunch. And then there's Peter, John, and Matthew who would become famous authors. Perhaps they were more scholarly. Perhaps they quoted scripture more. And then there's the obscure James the Lesser. We don't hear much at all in the scriptures or in church tradition. Ordinary people touched by the extraordinary grace of God. And I take pains to point that out because most of us are ordinary. If you're from Lake Wobegon, Minnesota, all the kids are above average. I don't know how that can work. But all of us are ordinary. Frail, fragile, imperfect. Yet God calls us and God can use us. He would, in the course of three years, knit that band together. And they would all but one die for their faith in Jesus Christ. Well, finally, picking these 12, it's a group of ordinary men, but they have great significance. Great significance. They are all foundational to the church, literally foundational to what God was doing in the history of redemption, a history that had started with Abraham, or even all the way back to Adam, but in particular with Abraham and the creation of the Jewish people, and from Abraham came the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, and from him uh, the 12 tribes of Israel. And God worked through that assembly of people on the earth. In this New Testament, New Covenant era, God's work is changing. It's focusing on Christ. And in Christ, the, the organization will also have 12 components. Not a physical family tree, but perhaps we could say a spiritual family tree as 12 apostles spread out across the known world with the gospel. We know they're foundational because of their teaching. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, as it describes the 
nature of the early church, they devoted themselves first to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and to prayers. Four pillars of the early Christian church. And number one was the apostles' teaching. Why? Because these are the ones Jesus particularly commissioned and equipped and sent with authority, with his authority to establish the church. When an apostle spoke, they were speaking as ambassadors for Christ. And the great commission, which we take for all Christians, was first explicitly given to them at the end of Matthew 28. Jesus came and said to them, looking at them in the eyes, the 12 that are gathered there, as well as uh, other disciples, but primarily them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations. They have this foundational, significant, important role. The pattern of the 12 is very intentional. The 12 patriarchs and tribes in the Old Testament, now the 12 apostles. We see that Jesus is trying to connect both Jew and Gentile in these days of the New Testament. You could read that in Ephesians 2. Ephesians 2 talks about uh, not only our salvation by grace alone through faith alone, but it talks about how the dividing wall has been taken down and God is making out of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man in Christ. In Ephesians 2, it goes on to say explicitly in verse 19 and 20, so then you, Christians are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built, he says, upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Are these apostles important? You bet they are. You bet they are. Now notice, officially, the office of apostle has passed. I see a lot of church mail come and go, and I always wince when I see some guy, some congregation, calling a man an apostle. Apostle so-and-so is going to be with us for a meeting. Oh, my. The world and, and certain segments of the church see somebody with gifts or fruitfulness, and they think he's got to be more important, so they give him that title, I guess. But I've read the Bible, and I know that the office of apostle gets its authority solely by those who had seen and served Jesus and are sent out by him. So we ought to stay away from that title, even if they're not using it in the same sense. It should be avoided. This office that Jesus created, these sent ones, have a very peculiar honor in heaven. We won't dwell on it, but I'll just mention this in passing. In the new Jerusalem, Revelation 20, we hear God honoring as he describes what this heavenly city looks like, this gathering of his people. And Revelation speaks uh, symbolically about realities. Listen to what you hear in Revelation 21. And he, the angel, carried me, John, away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city of Jerusalem coming down from heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like jasper as clear as crystal. It had a great high wall 
with twelve gates, twelve. And at the gates, twelve angels, and on the gates, the names of the twelve tribes, the sons of Israel, were inscribed. And it goes on. And on the three east gates, and on the north three gates, and on the south three gates, and on the west three gates. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations. And on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. What is God doing? He's taking Jews, he's taking Gentiles and making one new people in Christ. And that will be reflected throughout eternity. And both covenants and both leaderships will be reflected. But it's one new city. The church, we call it. This is a gospel for all peoples. The selection of these men was so important. And in answer to his prayers, these are the men God gave to Jesus. So what's his plan? Let's look quickly. They get some on-the-job training. What's the plan in the ministry of Jesus here? Because we go beyond this, uh, verse 16, verses 17 to 19, this little transition paragraph leading up to the big Sermon on the Mount section. We see first the primacy of the word. Jesus giving them on-the-job training emphasizes the primacy of the word. What do I mean by that phrase? The, the importance of preaching, the importance of the word of God and putting it in the front of what we're doing in ministry. We read in verse 17, He, Jesus, came down with them, the apostles, and stood on a level place with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him. That's what it mentions first. And if you've read the Gospel of Luke with us through these first six chapters or other Gospels, you know, (coughs) excuse me, if you've read, you know the pattern of Jesus, teaching and healing, teaching and healing. And even though there were more people to heal, Jesus said, well, I've got to keep going, preaching and healing, teaching and healing. The primacy is on the word of God. Jesus in this gathering that's about to take place is teaching his apostles as well as all the disciples. The apostles got to sit closer and they probably got some follow-up tutoring after the sermon. They're learning, but they're also seeing a model for what they would do. The primacy of the word as they would fulfill the Great Commission. What was that great commission he gave them? Make disciples. Teach them all that I have commanded you. Go. It's primarily these apostles that are given this great commission. The primacy of the word. Well, there's more. They're learning to serve. The crowds had gathered not only to hear him, but to be healed of their diseases. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits were cured. So you've got sick people showing up and crazy people. And not just crazy, I'm using that very loosely, people that had uh, either mental illnesses or they had spiritual afflictions, unclean spirits. It was a, 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 a big group of needs. 
and Jesus would serve them. He wasn't just a professor that would walk in and then walk away. Class dismissed. He would linger. He would touch them and be touched by them. He would learn what their ailment was and heal and restore. He would free the oppressed from the demons that afflicted them. He would serve them. He went out among God's people and their neighbors. And Jesus is doing that not only to help the people, but to provide a model for his apostles. He's bringing them along, giving them a front row seat. This is what we're here to do. To preach and to serve. Well, let me pause and ask, how are you serving and where are you serving your master? I think most of us are pretty happy about the word part and we love to read our Bibles and study our Bibles. But if we're like our Lord, if we're disciples... Are we serving others as Jesus did? And before we move on, I want to emphasize one more thing here in the plan and ministry of Jesus. He was working and and serving to show the manner of serving and the manner of his ministry. It was full of mercy and love. There's just this small phrase in verse 19. And all the crowd, crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him and healed them all. Jesus wasn't just being selective. He had grace and mercy for whosoever would come. There's a manner how Jesus works graciously. There's a great multitude here. And Jesus took the time. That was his nature. Well, as we close on this Communion Sunday, let me just highlight a few lessons that we might take them away And implement them clearly in our own lives. Number one, prayer comes first. Prayer comes first. We'll hear more about prayer in the coming weeks as we have our annual week of prayer. You will hear about prayer. In fact, you've got a bulletin insert today about prayer. You'll hear stuff next week about prayer. And I hope God gets through to all of us. Prayer comes first. If it was necessary for the sinless incarnate Lord Jesus Christ in his humanity, how much more is prayer essential and necessary for us? Prayer is the breathing of a Christian. Are you a praying Christian? Are we a praying church. I could give you the statistics for our prayer meetings. But that's not always the best measure. I'll leave that to the Lord to work in us a commitment to pray. Yes, it's good to gather and pray with others from this fellowship. But the first step is praying. My other exhortations are this, to remember that ordinary people are called to serve. Ordinary people. We sometimes get this world's professionalism mindset. Well, if something needs doing, I'll call the pastor. If something needs doing, I'll call a deacon. I'll call the Bible study leader to pray. What we need to pray, we need to study, we need to share, we need to serve. Ordinary people. 
If you're a disciple, God first calls you to be with Jesus, and then he calls you to go for Jesus. That's what a disciple is. Well, how can I be with Jesus now? Jesus isn't around. Well, we can't follow him around the shore of Galilee, but we can spend time with him in his word and wait upon him in prayer, serious seasons of prayer, open meditation upon his word. His word speaks to us. In prayer, we speak with him. You can spend time with Jesus. But then you also need to go for him. Jesus, on many occasions, said go. The models for the church, these disciples were called apostles because they were equipped and called to go. Finally, I put the word power as their final exhortation here because I think there's a phrase Luke uses in verse 19 that just reminds us where the power for ministry comes from. Verse 19, it said, And the crowd sought to touch him, for power came out from him. Power for ministry, power for the Christian life comes from Jesus. And I'm not turning mystical here that we have to touch Jesus or wait till we get zapped spiritually. I think Luke includes it here as, as an anchor point, as a clear directional marker to understand that if something's going to change in your body or in your soul, the power has to come from Jesus. Power for our ministry. Power for your spiritual resolutions comes from Jesus. I heard this morning from another person who says, I'm going to try to read all the Bible in 2023. Amen. I've got my, my check sheet started. And so I said, let me jot down your name before I forget. If you told me before today, I may have forgotten. So tell me again. I'll write your name down. I'll pray for you and have you pray for me. We want to spend time with Jesus because that's where our power comes from. The Spirit of Christ. I love the promise of Acts 1.8 when Jesus spoke to these men as he was about to ascend into heaven and leave. He said, wait till you're clothed with power. In Acts 1.8 he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Those 12 ordinary men got it done because power came from Jesus. How are we going to live the Christian life? How are we going to do what God calls us to do? With the power he gives us. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you that disciples are called by grace, that disciples are built up by grace, and disciples are used by grace with the power of your Spirit. Lord, we long to be real disciples. And from this group of disciples, Lord, I pray that you continue to call up in this church and in your kingdom those who will lead and serve in particular ways. Lord, we need in the church at large more elders. We need more deacons. We need more leaders among men and women to help and provide for your church. We pray that disciples would be serving and ready to serve. And may this all build up the church and bring glory to the name of Jesus Christ.
who prayed, who lived and died and rose again, and who reigns and will come again. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen.